last few weeks, listening in, as I said at the beginning of our service, to that final conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples, uh, literally hours before his arrest, uh, or, or, or minutes even before his arrest, and hours before his crucifixion. And we've heard so much of his heart, those things he wanted them above all else to know and understand. We saw in the washing of the feet how Jesus himself was stooping from the glory of heaven to the horror of earth in order to cleanse not our feet but our hearts. We've seen how he wanted us to be absolutely uh, certain uh, in the face of death, uh, his death, their death, our death. What does death hold for us and beyond? He wanted the disciples to live with confidence knowing that their death was not the end but a new beginning. We've seen how the Holy Spirit was given to be alongside us in the same way that Jesus was alongside those first disciples and how the Holy Spirit draws us into intimacy, takes us right into the heart of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And then last week we heard of how God has called us, called us for significance, called us to be involved in things not just here today and gone tomorrow, but committed to things that will last both now and forever. All of these blessings that he was so anxious to share with his disciples in those last moments. Does Jesus pause now, I wonder? I wonder whether his speech gets a little quieter, whether he drops his voice, whether a hush of a different kind descends. Because in one verse, he changes the conversation completely. In one single verse, just a few words, Jesus moves from the blessings that there are in Christ to the burden of being in Christ. And to be honest, it's a burden that you and I know very little about. And it's because we know very little about it that I want our thoughts this morning to be very much with those who understand these words in a way we just can't because they're not in our experience. Please don't misunderstand me. I don't want to minimize for one moment the opposition that you may face as a Christian. There may be people that mock you. There may be people that don't understand you. Maybe even your own family that finds your faith hard to cope with and is not supportive of you in it. There may be those who keep their distance from you regard you as the focus of ridicule, the the butt of a joke or two. Fair game because you're a Christian, and it hurts, and it wounds us. And we need to hear these words of Jesus for ourselves. But how can we hear these words just for ourselves? Without remembering our brothers and sisters around the world who face stuff that is way beyond the things that you and I have to face in being a Christian. It's not really a difference in degree, I don't think, but a difference in kind. For so many, these words of Jesus in those last hours are terrifyingly real. Let's watch. The battle is very real. Would you in your Bibles, if you uh, have closed them to the passage that Lou read to us, John chapter 15. And uh, we're going to look at verse 18 together as we begin John chapter 15 and verse 18. The mood has changed. Jesus moving from the blessings 
to the burden of being in Christ. Jesus himself about to face the ultimate persecution. He looks around the room and he looks around at these men that he knows and he loves. Men so tough on the outside but so scared on the inside. And his heart goes out to them. And he says, listen guys, there's something you really need to know. Something you need to understand. If the world hates you, then please remember, keep in mind that it hated me first. Imagine the disciples. Suddenly this change all too quick for them to comprehend. What's he saying? What's going to happen to us? Hate us? Why? Whom? Where? Why would anyone hate us? What does Jesus know that we don't? And maybe they question him a little bit about what he's trying to say to them. And maybe they want, as we would do, add such undue weight to the word if. If the world hates you, well, if they do, Jesus will remember. But I'm sure they won't hate us. Why would they hate us? What's there to hate? It's too hard to contemplate the world hating us. And so they tried to push it back. It'll be fine, Jesus, but if they do, we'll remember. And so Jesus comes back clearer and stronger. Verse 20. Now, not an if, but a will. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will. They will persecute you also. No doubt is removed, for Jesus' persecution is for those followers of his inevitable. But why? Why should a people committed to love, a people against injustice, who give themselves to the poor and the needy, who pursue peace with all men, why should they be persecuted? Jesus helps us understand. Persecution is is inevitable. Why? Firstly, because we are no longer of this world. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. And that's why the world hates you. John, in his Gospel, talks a lot about the light coming into the world. You'll remember the the phrase at Christmas time, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And John uses a Greek word for the word world from which we get our English word cosmos. And, And the Greek word that's used has the association of darkness. Not just any world, but this dark world. This dark world that rages against God and against his light. And here Jesus is saying, you've got to understand, we've changed sides. We're no longer loved by this world because we're no longer of this world. We once belonged to them, but in Christ we do know longer. Chosen, called, changed, transformed out of this world. We're seated in Christ. Our citizenship no longer earthly, but heavenly. So they hate us, Jesus would say, no longer of this world. Persecution is is inevitable. Why? Secondly, because we are now associated with Jesus. Verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Since the world didn't recognize him, couldn't cope with him, the world was threatened by Jesus, they needed to get rid of him, they didn't know how to handle him, in the end they nailed him to a cross because they could not cope with who he was and what he said. Jesus says the same, because you now own my 
name. You belong to the one that this world cannot cope with. You belong to, this, to the one that this world does not understand. And the controversial Scotsman Samuel Rutherford wrote in his incarceration several centuries ago, God has called you to Christ's side and the wind is now in Christ's face in this land. And since you are with Christ, you cannot expect the shelter, sheltered or sunny side of the hell. Persecution is inevitable, thirdly, because we embody the truth that exposes this world's evil. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Jesus is saying, if no one had come to point out what's wrong, you couldn't blame them for getting it wrong. But because I have come and I have pointed out what's right and what's wrong, I have shown the difference between what's light and what's dark, because I've done all of this, then they stand guilty, for they have rejected the light. And people fear both the light and the truth because it exposes the evil in our hearts. We go to great lengths, don't we, in our lives to conceal the wrong that's in our hearts. Bill Clinton's downfall, whatever we think of his mistake, his political downfall was ultimately not for his error, but for his attempt to hide that which was wrong. And we're all like him. We try and hide our mistakes. And the coming of the light exposes the darkness. The coming of the truth forces us to confront what's wrong in our hearts. And we as God's people who now embody that light and are bearers of that truth present a challenge that threatens a world in darkness. As John puts it at the beginning of his gospel, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. That's why the world that seeks to live in shadows is so threatened. That's why persecution is inevitable. And through the centuries and around the globe, it has been true. Christians have been challenged and persecuted out of all proportion for the good that they have tried in the main to manifest here on earth. Britain itself has sometimes been a very dangerous place for a Bible-believing Christian. And if we've escaped thus far, maybe we're the weird ones. Maybe we're the ones that don't quite fit. We like to think, don't we, in our Western uh, civilized Christianity, that the center of the Christian world is ours. There's some really wonderful work being done by Weck at the moment and Wycliffe about plotting how the center of gravity in our world is moving east all of the time. And it is now a phenomenal distance from us. We need to see the world differently. And maybe we're the weird ones. Maybe that light is not strong enough in us and the truth not clear enough in us so actually no one's bothered much. Around the world, nations cannot stand Christians meeting together. In our country, they simply couldn't care less. Peter Kuzmik, a leading evangelist in Eastern Europe, uh, puts it like this, so much popular Western evangelical religiosity is so shallow and shellfish. It promises so much and demands so little. It offers success, personal happiness, peace of mind, material prosperity, but it hardly speaks of repentance, sacrifice, self-denial, holy lifestyle, and a willingness to die for Christ. Jesus said to those disciples, persecution, inevitable. The second thing he said, persecution, terrible. Verse 2 of chapter 16. They will, they will, 
Not if. They will put you out of the synagogue. They'll kick you out of the church as it was in those days. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Let's just spend a few moments absorbing what's going on in our world right now. That was uh, Brother Andrew of uh, God Smuggler fame, those of you who've read the, the book. It's hard to understand, isn't it? 200 million Christians are suffering like that. It's hard to understand that in our, the end of the age in which we've lived, 26 million have lost their lives in the 20th century. That's more than all the other centuries put together. It's hard to understand. It's inevitable, Jesus said, and it can be oh so terrible what men will do to one another. So is there, is there hope? How, how can there be hope in a world like this? How can there be hope for me when I'm pretty scared to talk to someone about Jesus in case they think I'm a bit funny? How can there be hope when I'm sometimes scared to stand up for what's right because most people don't anymore and you look a bit odd? Is there hope? Well, Jesus offers his followers hope. But thirdly, persecution is endurable. The survival and growth of the church is an incredible story. Even in its earliest days, they worked hard to stamp the church out. We're only a few chapters into the church's story. You don't have to get to chapter 8. Chapter 3 of the church's story, bear in mind the church began in chapter 2. Chapter 3 of the church's story, they're being hounded for preaching about Jesus. And so it goes on and it builds to a crescendo just a few chapters later, a few weeks, a few months later. It's hard to tell the timescale. And on that, great, on that day when Stephen was killed, a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered. And every human being on earth must have thought it's going to be over. How on earth can this rather uh, unorganized band of fishermen rise against the organized persecution that ultimately would come from the Roman Empire itself. How will they survive? They will not, surely. And yet as you read Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, and you keep going in the story, the growth of the church does not slow down, it accelerates. Incredibly, it speeds up. And maybe this guy was right, who a few centuries later, Tertullian, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. He was understanding something about the harder they go against the church, the greater she will rise. The more they seek to cut her down, the greater she will flourish. Was he right? Twenty centuries later, he was right. He was right. He was right. And so were the words of uh, Gamaliel very early on in the persecution, Acts chapter 5. They're having this great debate, the Jews, about how they're going to stamp out this Christian faith stuff. In fact, they didn't call it that, this Jesus movement. How are they going to crush it? 
And we've got no insight necessarily that Gamaliel wanted this Jesus movement to succeed any more than the others. But he gave them a warning. His warning was simple. If it's from God, if what these Galilean men are doing is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll find yourself fighting against God. Was he right? 20 centuries later, he was right. And here in these final hours, Jesus said with his disciples, I love you and I've got to tell you that what's coming is far from what you or I would want. Inevitable, terrible, but it is endurable. There is hope. Why is there hope? There is hope because Christ is in control. He writes to them, in, or he speaks to them, which is recorded in verse 25. What will happen is not outside God's control. What will happen is still in God's control. This will happen to fulfill what was written. In other words, Christ is above it. He came before it. He predicted that it will happen. He will survive it. He will come after it. Centuries before God had said, way back in the Old Testament, there will be this time of sorrow and heartache. It does not mean God is off the throne. It does not mean God's rule and reign is over. God will still be in control and it will come to an end and he will be there to meet you. The momentary taunt will give birth to a new heaven. A bit like what Isaiah was saying when the evil men seem to flourish. Uh, Isaiah, seeing through God's eyes, says it's like this, really. If you can only see it from heaven, when you look from heaven, you realize that men are just like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The breath of the Lord simply blows on them and they are gone. People are just like grass. There is hope because Christ is always in control. There is hope, secondly, because Christ is the one that we belong to. If you belong to the world, it would be okay, but you don't belong there anymore. Hated, why? Because we belong to Christ. This implacable hatred of the world reaffirms our new identity, no longer part of this fallen, broken world, but made for something different, something better. We're suffering for him. I am his, and he is mine. But more than that, we're suffering with him. There's hope because Christ's presence is with us. His presence is with us. And just as he was with those early believers when Saul was breathing those murderous threats against them, Jesus was so identified with them that when Jesus met Saul on the road to uh, Damascus, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's how much Jesus identifies with us in our moments of opposition. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, more than most, understood it. He went back to Germany as a Christian when war broke out. He put his neck on the line for Jesus Christ, was executed for the privilege. And while he was imprisoned awaiting that execution, he said it's like this, by gracious powers, here in this place, we feel so wonderfully sheltered. And confidently waiting, come what may. In this darkness, we know above all else, God is with us and never fails to meet us each new day. And there is hope because his power is with us too. He goes on to talk about the Holy Spirit. There are more verses that you can look at in your small group this week that Lou didn't read to us this morning. More verses that we haven't got time to consider about the Holy Spirit coming as the counsellor, 
the one who comes alongside, but more than that, those verses go on to tell about the Holy Spirit who will lead the mission, who will lead the advance into this dark world. And we go not by ourselves, but we go in the wake of God's Holy Spirit who leads the way. But is all this worth anything? I can speak all day about some kind of platitudes from the Bible about how if we were under great threat, it'll really be okay because we've got Christ's presence and his power and he's still in control. But does it really cut the mustard? Does it really make a difference when men rape your wife and steal your children? Do these words mean anything when persecution really comes? I don't think we can answer. But here on the screen are some people who can. I'm amazed by what they say. Stories of life and hope, vitality of worship, passion for God's word, victorious living, strong determination, incomprehensible peace, all the things we long for. In our world, for ourselves. The things that we find so often so hard to grasp. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all around the world today, people standing for Jesus in ways that amaze us, what should we do? Well, we need to support them. And here are some of the ways that this can happen. And after we've watched this for a few moments, and a few more moments about searching ourselves, what does it say to me? and to you about the way we live that one way, Jesus. You're the only one that I could live for. What does it say to me as I search my heart? Could I live like that? Would I be, living, would I be willing to live in that kind of way? Could I say, as we heard earlier, if you kill me, I will be with Jesus. If you want to kill me or let me live, it's not important. I win. Could I say, in all circumstances, I win? And how come things are easy for us anyway? Amy Carmichael puts it profoundly. No wound, no scar, yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced to the feet that follow me, but thine a whole. Can he have followed far who has nor wound, nor scar?